Um, and we do have a seminar series this term on contested histories, um, which deals with different um, aspects of societies trying to deal with, to negotiate their conflicted pasts. Different countries, different societies, and different conflicts uh, in the past. And today um, will mainly be on history textbooks in India and in Cyprus. And I'm sure that this also will invite a lot of comparisons to um, other countries and how they deal with their past. We have a number of very distinguished guests who will speak and share tonight, and um, it's my job to introduce them, and then uh, I will actually afterwards um, hand over to um, uh, Nandini Manrekar, whom I will introduce in a second. But what I wanted to say before we start is that our two speakers tonight, Nilaudi Bhattacharya, who is sitting uh, here at the end of the table, and Eleni Christodoulou, who's uh, here uh, to my right, have both a connection, and that is that they have been active members in uh, the so-called ICAS project, which is an international center for advanced studies um, uh, in no uh, New Delhi, in India, uh, which is a joint Indian-German venture um, of humanities research. Um, and the overall topic of this international center is the metamorphosis of the political. And it is organized in six or seven different modules. And the first of those modules deals with history um, uh, uh, as a political category and in, with the ways in which public history is being sold and told, uh, including textbooks and public narratives about history. And this also explains why they are members uh, in this particular module of, of ICAS, and, um, and that is also that they are experts in the history of textbooks. Um, now, let me start um, to introduce, um, well, I think first our chair, that's Professor um, uh, Nandini Manrikar, who's sitting um, over there, right next to Niladri. Um, she is professor um, at Tata Institute of Social Sciences in Mumbai, has also been dean there, and her research really focuses on education in conflict areas, uh, mostly in a historical perspective. Uh, gender and schooling is a particular interest of hers, um, and she has worked on the politics of textbooks and curricula, and uh, books by her, for example, are 2009, The Hindutva View of History, so the Hindu nationalist view of history, rewriting textbooks in India and the United States, um, or from 2011, Ideals of Hindu Girlhood, reading Vijaya Bharati's Balika Shikshan. I'm sure that I mispronounced some of this. Um, and. Um, she is also vice president of the Comparative Education Society of India and joint editor of the Sage Journal Contemporary Education Dialogue. So um, she will chair. And um, then our two speakers, and we will hear short talks by both of them, and then afterwards we will have a discussion. Um, I start with Eleni Christodoulou here. So Dr. Christodoulou is um, from the Georg Eckert Institute in Brunswick in Germany, and that's an institute um, which is specialized in textbook research and uh, also textbook history. Um, Dr. Christodoulou's particular expertise is in 
the prevention of violence and, and extremism um, through education. And she has worked, and that was her PhD as well, in political sciences at the University of Birmingham on um, peace education in Cyprus and uh, textbooks in Cyprus. Um, she's also been an advisor to many political foundations and organizations in regard to textbooks and preventing violent extremism. Um, and uh, her research is very interdisciplinary and the role of education in peace and conflict and violence pr prevention really forms the core of of um, what she is doing, often with um, a, a particular attention to security in, in this context. And we will hear from her about Cyprus today. And then Neladi, Neladri Bataharia is a professor at Jawaharlal Nehru University in New Delhi um, and uh, of modern history. And he has written um, many books on the making of colonial rule and the, particularly the agrarian society under colonial rule and after colonial rule. Um, but he's also very involved in the representation of history and public history in India. He is chief advisor of the new series of history textbooks for schools in India. Um, and um, this is obviously a very um, charged area in India today. Um, and we have just been talking before this talk about um, current attempts at rewriting or censoring parts of these textbooks and um, the, the difficult positions in which uh, historians as chief advisors find themselves um, in, this, in this area. And um, he will talk about public history and textbooks in India for us. Okay, I will hand over to Nandini and thank you all. I just sort um, that uh, given the status of um, the, the, the textbooks as sites of conflict, I mean almost inherently sites of conflict because they're sites of knowledge production which is never conflict free, the, uh, the ways in which um, looking at textbooks reveal to us uh, how canonical knowledge gets framed for children because textbooks are mandatory reading for the young in all societies. So how this canonical knowledge gets framed and um, how the um, 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 the examination of textbooks is becoming increasingly a very complex and challenging uh, field and reforms in textbooks is of textbooks is becoming extremely complex um, because the, the sort of essential to the ways in which textbooks are, uh, one is that they work in all societies, work within the frame of the nation state um, and therefore often, um, you know, provide sites for conflicts of different groups, uh, of different kinds of narratives. Um, and when we try to open these up, as Eleni and Niladri will uh, today in two different contexts, uh, what we uh, do see is the ways in which, how do we understand how myth making and memory or, or myths and memory constitute uh, exceedingly challenging areas for us when it comes to the sort of codification of some kind of social knowledge in 
school textbooks. So we're, I, I think the, 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 both the uh, presentations are going to give us a lot of insight uh, into um, not only what exists on the ground, what kinds of debates on, on, on history textbooks and public history uh, we see in these two uh, contexts, uh, but also in terms of how we actually uh, frame our questions about um, uh, textbooks uh, today. Um, so I, I think the format that we'll follow is that Elena will, spe will speak first, followed by Niladri, and it would be nice if we could um, sort of have a conversation between them, perhaps, uh, for which you'll have to take out your notebooks, and uh, then we will open out the discussion um, to the audience. Mm -hmm. I'd, I'd request you to stick to your 20-minute <coughs> deadline, and you'll get a little nasty note from me, which... Uh, at the end of 15 minutes. Thank you. So, Eleni. So, I'm going to try and time myself. So, uh, thank you very much to the German Historical Institute in London, especially Idra and Mariam for the invitation and to Christina for the kind introduction. Thank you everyone for being here today despite the weather. Um, I am very honored to be in the same uh, seminar series slot with Nilaji, who as you will witness in a minute yourself shortly, he is the sort of person who when he starts talking, there's a kind of firework of brilliant ideas and inspiration and everyone's scribbling down notes. So I'm really quite relieved that I I was uh, the first one because it's really not easy to give a talk after the laundry. Um, the title of my talk is Educational Anxieties, Securitizing History Textbooks in Conflicted Societies. Today I will present insights primarily from the Cyprus conflict, uh, drawing from two pieces of work one that outlines the theoretical framework of securitization of new history textbooks, in other words, their construction as a security threat uh, that was published last year, and one that is currently in progress where I'm extending the framework both conceptually to highlight the role of emotions and anxiety, but also empirically. And in this empirical part, I'm working with Judita uh, Fontana, a colleague uh, from the University of Birmingham, to apply this framework to the case of Lebanon. That's a relatively new recent, uh, recent field for me, so if there are any Lebanon experts out here, I would love to have a discussion later. Um, so a lot of the work I, um, has been done in analyzing textbooks and their problematic content. So um, a lot of researchers have done discourse analysis of textbooks, expressing how they have stereotypes, demonizing the other, they're dehotomizing. However, there's very little in-depth research regarding the discourses about the textbooks. And this is what I'm aiming to do. So the main research question is, why is there so much resistance to revising or changing history textbooks? What are people afraid of and why are they successful in resisting history textbook revisions? This study aims to answer these questions by deconstructing the resistance stemming from Greek Cypriots towards potential changes to history textbooks as part of the ongoing peace process. Now, why is this topic important? Well, merely rejecting the negative attitudes to textbook revision, as some scholars have done, calling them either spoilers or backward, does not really take us very far and can be counterproductive. By this, I do not contend that they are not nationalists or that they do not disrupt the peace process, but rather posit that we need to go beyond these labels and merely rejecting their positions to try and actually deconstruct them, to understand their dynamics. These are not just collateral side effects of the conflict, but are part and parcel of the conflict itself. 
constituting but also reproducing it and thus exacerbating it. The agency of local actors, such as religious leaders, who have historically been involved in matters of education, uh, more in, uh, historically in Cyprus but in Lebanon still today, needs to be seriously considered and problematized. Scholarship, especially in the Cyprus context, often lacks historical context, ignoring how strongly the public detested the British attempts, of the, so the colonizers' attempts, to so-called de-Hellenicize the island. So to take away the Greek aspect of its education. Religious leaders at the time used their political power to support the schools and protect them from colonial interference. We therefore need to place the remnants of these policies in perspective and appreciate their legacies, adopting a critical lens on liberal peace-building norms, as has been emphasized by scholars such as Richmond, McGindy, and Novelli and Higgins. History textbook revisions are a hotly contested topic in public debates and a very sensitive one, what I call the Achilles heel of peace-building debates. They are highly politicized. This is because choices about what are to be included and excluded constitute a political act, reflect the political circumstances, but also have political implications. Matters of history education spark fierce debates that penetrate all levels of society, from the public to the private sphere, from parliamentary deliberations to television and newspaper debates, from trade unions and religious institutions to the coffee shop and our own living room. So this offers a rich and diverse form of empirical material, but also demonstrates the significance of this issue for society. Exposing discursive strategies of securitization has three important research implications. First, it improves our empirical understanding of the power relations that ensure resistance is successfully reproduced. Secondly, it allows us to delve into the particular discursive constructs, the ideological and normative assumptions that underpin them, and the emotional echoes that they generate and are shaped by. Thirdly, it opens up the space to identify examples and marginalized practices of desecuritization that go against the hegemonic practices and discourses, providing windows of opportunity for uh, overcoming the educational stagnation. I'm now going to move on to what I mean by educational anxiety, and here it is important to remember that in Cyprus, the resistance is not over a particular new history textbook, as was the case in Lebanon that has been published or even proposed, it's actually over a completely imaginary history textbook. It's just the idea, a potential idea of a revision that is being strongly resisted. And we can call these imagined, and by imagined I don't refer to an illusion or a fantasy, but rather want to emphasize that this is a proposal that in the course of the public debates has fallen prey to the extremes of the imagination, exactly because there's no abstract, concrete example to be able to discuss. Moving to educational anxieties, according to psychiatrists Sadok, Sadok and Ruiz, although both are alerting signals, anxiety which can be defined as a diffuse, unpleasant, vague sense of apprehension, should be distinguished from fear. Fear relates to a known or understood threat, whereas anxiety follows from an unknown or poorly defined threat. So, anxiety as a response to an imprecise or unknown threat is related to the possibility that the worst scenario will happen, so it's a form of catastrophizing. 
It comes from a cognitive interpretation, or rather misinterpretation, of the possible dangers that could arise as a result of history textbook revisions. In this case of history textbook revisions, I believe, however, that the line between fear and anxiety becomes blurred, as on the one hand, the threat is indeed unknown, so the overarching and prevalent emotion is anxiety, given that there is really not a concrete history textbook. But on the other hand, the, uh, there are elements of fear in people's minds that are related to a past threat, the Turkish threat, that is both specific and familiar. Over the past decade or so, there has been a significant work done that emphasizes the role of emotions in constituting identity and community after trauma and their role in reconciliation processes. Such work includes the, uh, the work of Sarah Ahmed on the cultural politics of emotion, the work of Hutchison and Bleicher on emotional reconciliation, or the work of Andrew Ross, who conceptualizes emotions as affective energies. However, there is very little done uh, and very little attention played to the specific role of anxiety and its role in preventing history textbook revisions. Hutchison and Bleicher argue that emotions configure a sense of identity that rests on a stark quote, separation between a safe inside and a threatening outside. In the context of, context of history education, this separation is between a familiar, safe set of historical truths, as we know them so far, because we've been raised with them, they've become part of our identity. And on the other hand, the foreign, often perceived as externally imposed, uh, Cypriot's love conspiracy theories, uh, change to the textbooks that will distort this truth and endanger our ed educational identity and by extension our social and ethnic identity. I argue that emotions and in particular anxieties related to educational changes are central to how communities understand, process and respond to peace education proposals or policies and so as scholars we should be more attentive to the role that they play. Educational anxiety can be triggered and mobilized in ways that strengthen the conditions of possibility that make resistance successful, thereby ensuring change never materializes. Educational anxieties become a source of division and polarization. Far from being a mere individual or private or personal issue, collective anxieties are shaped by and constitutive of the social context of patterns of language and communication. In addition, they play a key role in configuring attitudes towards particular objects, in this case, textbooks, and are valuable both in terms of the forms of knowledge and judgment they reflect. And as Martha Nussbaum put it, in quote, they are ways of viewing the world. Just as traumatic experiences rupture the linear narratives through which one experiences the everyday, the agony and stress associated with what could possibly happen with a change of history textbook resembles a potential traumatic experience with people fearing that new historical narratives will do exactly that, i.e. interrupt and disrupt the linear narratives they have been accustomed to and often raised with for so many decades. In other words, anxiety is perceived as a potential disruption or disintegration of the core of a community's identity. So we end up seeing that emotions are highly relevant for debates regarding the role of public history. Who owns public history? Who can and cannot decide on these matters? What ultimately is the purpose of history education? History textbooks become tools for political appropriation and, interesting, 
interestingly, a proxy for wider political debates vis-a-vis -vis the conflict and the future society that conflict groups envision. Emotions can be directed or manipulated by elites, as for example with the US government rhetoric of good versus evil uh, in order to gain support for the war on terror. And in some cases we end up with such a collective state of emotions, so the top-down process is reversed and becomes a bottom-up process, uh, that even with the change of government, it becomes difficult to transform this collective anxiety into something more positive. As we will see in the case of Cyprus, uh, not in Lebanon, the fear can be passed down both in terms of future generations, generations, but also down in terms of the elites to the public. And then the reverse happens, so that when a more left-wing government came to power in Cyprus and wanted to change of textbooks, it was the public uh, that, and the other political elites that really resisted this. So we see that it's not just top-down, but then becomes also a bottom-up process. We also have to remember that conflict countries like Cyprus and Lebanon are deeply embedded in a culture of trauma and as a quote, culture of pain, as Morris put it. So there's a particular sensitivity associated with history education that may not be present in other countries which have had neither the colonial, neither the civil conflict aspect. So educational anxieties are of particular importance here as these emotions, fear, anxiety, um, discomfort are not addressed and over decades they solidify into deeply sedimented layers that configure communities. Moving down to the specific Cyprus context, which, uh, and I will talk a little bit from the fieldwork that I undertook mostly from 2016 to 2018 and, and earlier from 2011 to, 12, to 2012. Cyprus gained its independence from Britain in 1960 and like many other post-colonial countries has been characterized by an ethnically divided and physically segregated society since 1974. I won't go into the historical details now, but after the Turkish invasion of the island, the majority of Turkish Cypriots were forced to go into the north, whilst the Greek Cypriots uh, moved to the south. Um, 162,000 Greek Cypriots were displaced uh, and 48,000 Turkish Cypriots. And to this day, which, and this remains a very sensitive issue of insecurity for the Greek Cypriots, till this day there are 35,000 Turkish troops still remaining in the island. Each side is contesting the legitimacy of the other. Uh, the green parts are the areas, are the British bases. Uh, the pink part is the area administered by the Turkish Cypriots and the south is administered by the Greek Cypriots and only the south has entered the European Union and is recognized by the UN. Paradoxically, however, the absence of violence in Cyprus, because since 1974 there has not been large-scale violence, has acted as a disincentive disincentivizing factor to the peace process because there's an absence of urgency. A uh, prevailing sense of comfort with a status quo can be partly attributed to fear of changes leading to future losses, political gains from populist leaders and political parties who have actually built their careers on um, the uh, Cyprus conflict. So in terms of the educational stagnation, since the early 1990s, the history textbooks remain largely the same. They might say new edition 2004, but the content is more or less largely unchanged. Uh, in contrast, in the Turkish Cypriot side, there were revisions in 2004 when there was a more left-wing Republican Turkish party in power, but then they were quickly withdrawn after the change of government to a right-wing party. Um, in the Greek Cypriot part, the main theme 
is the I do not forget and I struggle. This has been the main educational policy uh, after the invasion, and it focuses on students keeping the memory of the invasion, of the refugees, of the human rights abuses, the missing persons, the destruction of religious sites and of the lost lands in order to be able to claim them back. And you'll see in a minute how that's in a sharp contrast to the Turkish Cypriot narrative. In 2004, there was an education reform committee in the Greek Cypriot part which proposed the, re the revision of history textbooks. It uh, argued that there was an ethnocentric and culturally monolithic framework and that needed to be changed towards a multicultural approach that endorsed the principles of inclusive democracy and included the Turkish Cypriot community. In particular, the community actually proposed revision of history textbooks by a joint committee of both Greek and Turkish Cypriots. And uh, when the left-wing government came into power in 2008, um, the, the, there was a circular, the president put, uh, had a circular and the Minister of Education um, always has a circular at the beginning of every year, and they promoted, they tried to promote a culture of reconciliation and peace. And there was such outrage and resistance from the teachers, from trade unions, from parents, that how dare you put the whole emphasis of this year being on culture of peace and coexistence. And of course, there was so much resistance towards the proposed textbook revisions that in the end, nothing happened. Another uh, important element I really want to talk about, because it featured a lot in my interviews, was the so-called uh, Rebusi scandal. Maria Rebusi is an academic based in Thessaloniki in Greece, and she revised history textbooks for uh, the primary uh, education. And a lot of these t uh, textbooks usually come to Cyprus as well. Um, and there was, a, there was a huge outcry, really criticized, because uh, it was criticized for painting a rosy picture of trying to embellish the past. For example, from when it comes to the Turkish relations between uh, the Turkish past, uh, the relations between Turkey and Greece in the past, some terms like slaughter and kidnapping were replaced with jostling and recruitment. And that caused a huge outcry. And even though this happened in Greece and the textbook was taken uh, away, it was withdrawn and it was also withdrawn from Cyprus. And even though the textbooks in Cyprus are not brought from Greece when they're talking about the Cyprus conflict specifically, then everyone in my interviews mentioned this as a kind of example of why we shouldn't have a revision of textbooks. So we see that the discourses are not just domestic, there is also this um, international level to them. They're interdiscursive. And finally, a positive change was that in 2016, the UN set a bicommunal technical committee on education. However, the leaders of this committee made up of academics and teachers feel that they have, um, it's too early to revise the textbooks, so it's mostly uh, limited to bringing students and teachers together. So, this is an example, uh, probably the writing's too small to see, but this is uh, based on an analysis of uh, Babadakis' uh, work. And I just wanted to say that this is a Greek Cypriot narrative and the Turkish Cypriot narrative. And the very important thing is that for the Turkish Cypriots, the, uh, the, 
1974 invasion is called in the textbooks the happy end, the happy peace operation of 1974, and for them it's a permanent change. We don't look back, these are the borders. Whereas in the textbooks of the Greek Cypriots, it's called the tragic uh, 1974 barbaric Turkish invasion, and it's only temporary. That's why it's so important to keep the memory alive to return back to our stolen lands. Um, so, this is an example from a textbook, a primary textbook. The story uh, says, and it's from the series of I Remember and I, uh, I Remember, I Don't Forget and I Struggle. And this is a grandmother, it's a grandson, and she's crying because the uncle who is a missing person from the war. But this textbook was published in 2005, many, many years after we know that there are, the missing persons are not, no, uh, are actually dead. We are just, there's exhumations going on. But they were, the families of the missing persons were left for decades thinking that they actually might be alive. And they were holding their pictures and demonstrations and being in a, in a cell, in a prison cell in Turkey somewhere. But even though this textbook is published in 2005, it's, it presents the, in a pedagogy of trauma, manu manipulation of pain, the young boy is, is really happy. Then he meets his grandmother and he ends up crying in the end of the story and says, um, please help me make my grandmother happy again. And the only way this can happen is if there's a miracle and we find my uncle. So please help me find my uncle. So again, there's this perpetuation of uh, trauma, even though we know that these are not missing persons in the sense that we, they're not alive, they're, they're dead. Um, the theoretical framework of securitization is based on the so-called Copenhagen School of the late 1990s and gives emphasis not to whether a security object, a threat, object, objectively warrants a risk or danger, but rather to the process by which securitizing actors construct an issue as an existential threat thereby justifying actions outside the normal realm of politics, i.e. emergency measures. Certain issues are constructed as threats to reference objects, which result in these issues being shifted out of the normal bargaining process to the emergency mode of the security sphere, essentially uh, constituting a move from politicization to securitization. Securitization could be described as a more extreme form of politicization. It is an intersubjective, socially constructed and discursive process. I take this framework and apply it to history textbooks. So the threat here are, are there new proposed or imagined history textbooks that warrant a danger to the ontological and physical security and therefore justify actions which prevent these textbooks from being adopted or even created. My phone tells me I have three minutes and a half left, so I will go a bit fast from now on. Um, this framework, not that I've been going slow so far, uh, this framework actually allows us to uh, gain an increasingly precise understanding of who securitizes, what are the threats, for whom, or who are we trying to protect, and under what conditions is securitization successful. So who securitizes from the Ministry of Education, policymakers, uh, the government, the parties, the teachers, religious actors, and even the family environment. So what about, what are these discourses? As I've mentioned, there's a strong interplay between history education and matters of security, so far under-theorized and at the periphery of research on education. Let's look at some examples. These are the four themes of discourses that I found from my research. The first one is the loss of national identity. Um, this is 
associated with the colonial legacy, as we said earlier, there was always this fear of the external interference. This is also related to an anxiety that comes with an unresolved conflict and uh, this fear of losing oneself. The second one is loss of historical truth. And here, this linked very much with the Rebusi scandal, the fear of embellishing the past, twisting it, just so that we could have uh, political peace. And this was seen as disrespectful to the victims, but also to the heroes. It illustrates that for the Greek Cypriot's memory and history, which is often conflated, are presented as fixed and objective facts that are out there and therefore seen within a modernist lens. The third one, impact on the conflict, and it's only these first three that we see in Lebanon, in Lebanon. In Lebanon, we don't see the fourth one. The third one, impact on the conflict, is both domestic and international. The domestic related to, if we change the history textbooks, then that affects the students. So they won't be able to fight to get their land back. Also, they won't be able to be good soldiers when, when they're fighting. And therefore, this comes with a lot of anxiety, especially when they think, oh, there's still 35,000 Turkish troops here. In terms of the external dimension, the international dimension, it's about losing their bargaining power. Don't forget that unlike Lebanon, which had the Taif Agreement in 1989, 1990, in Cyprus there hasn't been a political solution. So always the argument is, yeah, 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 we'll change them after there's a political solution, after we had just transitional justice. So this is the fear that if we change the narrative and we're no longer victims, then how will we be able to promote our goal in the international UN community that we are the victims? And lastly, serving foreign interests, I told you we love conspiracy theories. Uh, this is a, the discourse that, uh, oh, there is this um, globalization force that is trying to wipe out our Greek identity and it's externally imposed. The thread that runs across all the four sub-themes, implicitly or explicitly, is security-related anxiety. Both physical security, so we, we will lose our physical sense of being, but also ontological security. And that relates to the autobiographical sense of narrative, of who we are, our sense of identity. Um, I'll give some quotes and then I'll, I'll finish there. Um, so a quote here, remember I told you it was 2008 that the circular came out? So 2008, I'm showing this because I think it's, uh, uh, even though it's an older one, it's quite uh, important. The bishop uh, said, we will not allow the distortion of history with new textbook revisions. We shall be totally opposed and as we'll go as far as urging children to throw away such books. These are from the published uh, article. And again here, this is a 2012 quote, it's about the physical presence. So look at the quote where it talks about the isolation would have wiped us out, our, it would have broken us from the rest of the body, of the Greek body that we are part of. So it's actually talking about education as being part of our ability to survive. We need education to survive. Uh, the consequences of securitization are exclusion, uh, social ostracization, people losing their jobs, professional, impending of professional mobility, etc., and people end up being isolated. There's a subject positioning of the, tra the traitors and the patriots, uh, the loyals and, the, um, and those who bring shame to our country. Uh, but I want to finish with a space of 
opportunity and a hybrid discourse. I did interviews with all the archbishops of the Holy Synod because in the media discourses, in the ar articles by academics, the church is always presented as the main reason, the main core source of resistance. But actually, in, in most of my interviews, there were windows of opportunity. And as you can see here, this is a hybrid discourse because it does say that we will talk about our mistakes and our wrongdoings, and we will support them, the textbook revisions, with all our strength but under one condition, that we are part of the process. This is very normal, and it would be very normal in Lebanon, but in Cyprus, which is increasingly becoming secular, this is something very controversial if we have religious actors being part of the process. So thank you very much. I'll leave the conclusions here. I hope that this has brought some uh, insights as to the role of emotions and uh, power and control, and I look forward to uh, hearing the next talk. Thank you very much. Um, we are both addressing the question, who owns public history? Uh, I think the answer to the question, who owns public history, will obviously depend on our conception of what is public history. Uh, how do we think about public history? Uh, what is meant and what is meant by ownership within the context of public history? Uh, the separation, I would argue, that the separation between uh, the historian and the public is a fairly recent phenomenon. Um, before the 19th century, we don't have that separation between the academia uh, and the professional historians and those who are writing for the public. Everyone wrote uh, histories. Uh, so the, the, uh, the constitution of this separate sphere, the specialization and the professionalization that, uh, of the academia, of the writing of history that develops over the 19th century, uh, creates a set of uh, oppositions, uh, and particularly this opposition between the professional and the amateur, the opposition between the academia and the public. Uh, so the professional historians who uh, become, in some way, uh, the people who own that, uh, own the practice of writing history, who uh, uh, somehow uh, define their role as uh, reading, the, as interpreting the past, as reading the past and writing about the past, they begin to see the history as their arena of activity. Writing history becomes a specialization and the techniques of writing, researching, referencing, authenticating facts, making claims to truth are all debated and specified and professionalized. Not everyone had access to the craft of the historian in the same way. Uh, writing of amateurs by the late 19th century, the writings of the amateurs is looked down upon. Uh, that's not proper history. Uh, professionals write proper history. Amateurs cannot write proper history. Uh, in the 20th century, uh, professional historians um, uh, gradually, over time, uh, by the 1930s and 40s, um, begin to see more and more. They always, uh, professional historians wrote for the public, but they uh, begin to see more and more that uh, they need to get out of this ghettoized, cloistered uh, space of history writing and write for the public. Uh, aware of the needs to break out of this cloistered space of the academia, they seek to reach out to the public and to a wider readership. Typically, this, this would imply that you write in a more general uh, language. You write 
for a wider re readership in a language that is compelling, in a narrative that is compelling, which will be uh, appealing to the other people. And you minimize uh, referencing, you minimize bibliography, you minimize all the uh, techniques that authenticate the right of the historian uh, to write history and authenticates their claims to truth. You don't write with all, all that paraphernalia. But by the 1960s, uh, uh, I would say that there is, in a certain sense, uh, a set of uh, movements which begin, which think of writing uh, uh, history and the public in a slightly different way. Um, I would differentiate here be between three different kinds of conception. Conception one, which is uh, from the 1960s, you see a new social movement in England and elsewhere, where there is a movement for, the right, uh, for writing for history from below. Uh, and this sought to capture the lives of the people, give voice to the perceptions of the people, uh, think about history and the conception of the past through the eyes of the people. Uh, histories were not uh, something which sought to be only written about the people, but history sought to capture the imagination of the people, the perception of the people, their conception of the past, and this, uh, their experiences of history, and this is what uh, doing public history in some sense meant. And uh, this, of course, this social history from below and uh, is something which is associated with E.P. Thompson, but at this time, it was still talked of as social history, as history from below rather than public history. Conception two, I would say, is something which we see from the 1970s. Um, when doing history meant a democratization of the act of writing history. Uh, writing histories, the practice of writing history, the historians who participated in this practice of democratizing history uh, sought to integrate different classes and communities and in the act of writing history. They were not simply to receive, the public was not there simply to receive history written by the historians, not simply to read the history which was written by professional historians, they were to become active agents in the act of writing history. Academics uh, overcame their insularity, their self-conceit, their arrogance that they alone can write history, and they uh, tried to help communities reflect on their history, analyze uh, their past, and help them analyze that past. Therefore, what they were seeking to do, these historians were seeking to do, is to educate the people in the techniques of history writing. They are, in a sense, taking the, profession, uh, the craft of the professional historian to the people. Um, uh, therefore, even when people were writing, not professional historians, they were using the craft of the historian, they were using uh, the archives, they were reading uh, uh, historical material, they were referencing, and they were uh, legitimating their claims to truth through all the uh, techniques, the professional historian's techniques of writing history. Uh, this. Uh, is the goal, this was the goal of the history workshop movement. Uh, Ruskin College to German history workshop movement to the German, uh, uh, US history workshop movement and a lot of the local history initiatives in the writing of local history in different countries. Conception three, again from the 1970s uh, we see, is uh, a movement where public history is uh, seen as practicing, uh, is uh, something which is practiced not simply within the, uh, the the arena of uh, professional historians not, is not something which is within the academia, not in the universities, not in the act of, uh, not through texts and the act of writing, but uh, it was to be uh, 
it was something which was to be done elsewhere. That is in the museums, in the heritage sites, uh, in historical sites, where uh, the, uh, there could be an interaction between the people and the professionals. And people, and in more critical theories of museumization, people could be integrated in the act of writing about the past within the museums. In South Africa, there are lots of experiments of this, where the, uh, the people come, can come and actually write their histories within the museums about apartheid, their experiences, and the, the museum actually seeks to capture that experience, not only give voice to them, but actually allow them to write their histories within the museums. Now, my argument is that no matter what this, uh, the, the diversity of these three, uh, how these uh, three conceptions differ, uh, no matter what their assumptions are, there are some things they share. In all these assumptions, the, the expert are still the agents of writing history. That you may take it to the, you may take history to the people, you may teach them, you may educate them, but you are the, you are authorizing history, you are teaching them the techniques of writing, and ultimately you authorize what is acceptable and not acceptable. You interpret, you read, you help them read. Therefore, the position and the authority of the professional historian is being retained, reaffirmed, reestablished through the act of uh, writing public histories. And this is something which the public history movement, the National Council of Public History and others, constantly reaffirm. Uh, for instance, in one of the lectures uh, given by a former president, um, uh, Wibley, he says that in the end, they, that is the historians, have to take responsibility for making the final edits on a community's notion of the past, what they are writing about the past and the historical narratives that they produce. Therefore, you are actually retaining that power to authorize, uh, delegitimate, legitimate. And the hope is that this interaction with the public will produce a history which will be acceptable to all. But the question that I wish to pose, and that's what I, the context in which I'll discuss the Indian uh, um, evidence, is uh, what if this authority to the historian is denied? What if the responsibility of the historian is not recognized by the public? Who authorizes the historian after all? Uh, who gives them the right to read the past, speak for the past, teach the public about the techniques to be used to, uh, uh, to recover a usable past, a meaningful past? Is this, not ri this right, this authority, not based on a social legitimacy, a craft, a legitimacy, and a craft, uh, and a mode of knowledge, a discourse uh, which is uh, legitimated through a process within society that is uh, which people come to accept as uh, a right that the historian has. Uh, what if this legitimacy breaks down? What if historians can no longer assert that legitimacy? If it does, my argument is, then the history, the public history becomes a site of a different kind of battle not between different academics' readings of the past, not of a confrontation of academic interpretations, whether developed in the cloistered spaces of other academia or the more democratized dialogic and interactive spaces that history workshop movements have sought to develop. Uh, this is no longer just a question of taking history to the public. What, and my argument is uh, there, what if with the breakdown of this, the dialogues which take place in the public, what if this dialogue happens between uh, discourses which are incommensurable, where you cannot even com comprehend what the other person is saying. And if you cannot comprehend, you cannot accept what they are saying, not because you cannot, because your assumptions and premises are completely different, then there is a deeper battle. 
And that is a battle for the authority and legitimacy of history, historians' right to speak for the past. And I would argue that what, what is happening within the Indian context is not just a debate over interpretation, is not just a simply uh, um, a conflict over how to represent the past, it's over a battle over the right of the historian to speak for the past and whether that, uh, uh, the right is something which the historians can reaffirm and retain. I'll draw my evidence uh, from uh, two, uh, uh, two or three pieces of evidence I'll cite uh, and then make a larger argument out of it. Uh, no, um, the, national, uh, the NCRT textbooks, the National Council of Educational Research and Training, which produces the national textbooks in India, um, it, uh, uh, the production of these textbooks from the 70s onwards have produced a whole range of debates and discussion. Uh, the first set of textbooks were written in the 1970s. Mm, they were written by my teachers and those who had lived through the national movement, were, lived in the first two decades of, uh, uh, became professional historians in the first two decades after independence. And they were writing a history uh, which uh, sought to uh, so, uh, which um, tried to develop a vision of the past untainted by colonial and communal, communal in the sense of ethnic communal, uh, that is, the, which sees the past only in terms of a conflict between Hindus and Muslims. They sought to uh, purge history of communal and colonial interpretations of the past. They read history, I would argue, in a homogeneous time that is discovered in the past a unity despite a, uh, despite a diversity, concord in the past rather than conflict. That's what they constantly foregrounded, that everyone lived together nicely. Uh, there was, uh, uh, there, were, uh, there was a, a sense of togetherness which was not disrupted by occasional conflict. Therefore, the emphasis is on concord, on conviviality, on uh, understanding each other, and tolerance, on um, all the values that secular, national, democratic intel uh, intellectuals of the 20th century value. Now, that was projected back into the past to read the past through those uh, uh, times. So, for what was foregrounded was collective, uh, collective sharing Unify, all that unifies people together rather than f makes them uh, fractious and uh, uh, help them to fight each other, leads to uh, uh, fragmentation and conflict. The second set of textbooks that which we was, I was involved in and in charge in some way uh, as chief advisor, we broke from that nationalist history, tried to write a different kind of a set of textbooks. And our emphasis first was on representation of multiplicity. Um, multiple cultures, diverse experiences, diverse histories, diverse voices, all that needs to be expressed through the narrative strategies within school textbook so that people know that we are not just simply all together as one homogeneous whole, but we are also different. And that understanding of that difference becomes part of a more, a richer nationalism or richer understanding of togetherness, that it cannot be flattened into sameness in order to develop an idea of unity. Uh, we tried to give more space to the uh, to space, what I would say, uh, we tried to uh, think about the heterogeneous social rather than the homogeneous national, uh, which was the emphasis of the first. Uh, so the tribal and the peasant, the artisan and the pastoralist, the middle classes and the plebeians, the rulers and the rebels, all had a space in the history. Their voices were there, their roles and uh, histories were there. So this, these histories uh, uh, also tried 
in this, uh, in this, within this project uh, to look at how the past is always mediated. Events in the past are always mediated by issues of gender, caste, class, and how we can actually think about all that in the writing of history. Now, these books uh, in the past and the present provoked, uh, were both welcome but also provoked um, massive reactions. Uh, I'm referring now just to two kinds of reactions or to the uh, history textbooks that we wrote. And from that, I'll try and uh, talk about how the que uh, there is a questioning of the legitimacy of the historians. Now, one of the, mm, you know, uh, from 1909 when we finished the book, uh, we've had uh, many, many, many court battles. And there have been case after case which have been filed against us, the, both NCRT and us as the writers and editors. And, and we have been writing uh, answers, uh, you know, uh, responding to writ petitions and legal cases and fighting these cases over a period of time. But the, uh, the discourses of those petitions and the writ petitions are extremely interesting to understand what kind of battles take place. I'll just give two examples here. One, what I refer to as the Nader protest. Um, there is a chapter in class nine textbook, which, is, uh, which was, now it's been eliminated, which was on uh, clothing and dress, uh, cl uh, history of clothing in India, uh, an attempt to uh, bring in everyday life into uh, uh, textbooks to sh tell students that look, everything around us has a history, uh, whether it's chairs and tables, clothes and cricket and sports, everything has a history. Now, the, and also to show how the dress codes that ever, uh, develop, tastes that develop, like emotions, you know, uh, uh, tastes that develop are uh, developed through history. And uh, this, uh, in writing about that, uh, there was a discussion around what we refer to as breastcloth controversy, uh, which is uh, in Tamil Nadu in the 19th century, the lower caste women were not allowed to cover the upper part of the body. And there was a conflict from the 1840s onwards for over 30, 40 years where the lower caste, and this, the example that was cited and the, uh, the, you know, the books which have been written on it is about the Nadars who were the toddy trappers, uh, tappers at that time, how there's a movement of uh, Christianized, uh, Christian uh, uh, Nadars and Shanas uh, asserting the right to, uh, of their women to cover upper part of the body rather than being open to the male gaze of the upper caste. Now this obviously immediately questions caste categories, uh, caste hierarchy, asserts the right of lower classes uh, and brings in the question of gender, caste, class right into the, um, into the writing of history that you, all these issues can be discussed through this and that's what it was doing. But the Nadars claimed and the Nadars reacted violently. They were hundreds of articles in the newspapers and a court case against us. And uh, the, in the petition, it was argued, and this is a petition from uh, um, Rajendra Prasad Nader, uh, who claimed that uh, the history school textbook had violated the dignity of the entire community of the Naders. The entire community of Naders had been aggrieved by the malicious and the intentional actions of the authors and the NCRT which had produced these books. Um, it went on to say, 
that uh, I humbly submit that the Nadas are original. It also suggested in the textbook that the Nadas had come from outside and one of the uh, uh, and migrated to uh, Kanyakumari. Now, one of the things which all local communities everywhere assert is that they are the original inhabitants of that place. That that establishes status. That establishes uh, their. Uh, right to be there, their identity, their symbolic power and authority. So uh, the, uh, the petition said that we are the uh, original inhabitants of Kanyakumari in the state of Tamil Nadu. The reference to the Nanda community is highly objectionable, derogatory, misleading, and I'm giving parts of the uh, long petition. This has caused permanent scar, wound, and injury to the Nadas, apart from dishonor and disrespect, defame. There is a uh, language problem in this uh, particular petition I've written, the original. I humbly submit that the Nadas uh, are none other than the descendants of rulers and kingdoms, the Cholas, Pandyas, and Nadas. They have never been lower caste. So what, they, what was claimed is that the Nadas have never been lower caste groups. They have, in fact, a royal inhibition. They never came from outside. They have been local inhabitants. The dress codes that are mentioned about them is uh, factually wrong. They have always covered the upper part of the body. It is false to say that women did not cover. It is actually upper caste women, Nayars and others, who didn't cover the upper caste part of the body. Uh, um, so essentially what is being uh, argued by the uh, petition is that everything that is being claimed in the text is false, it's malicious, it is an attempt to demean the community, and it is something which hurts their pride. And this notion of hurt is something which we see recurring in all the things, pain, trauma, hurt, that we are being traumatized. So one, it's not one adjective, it's a permanent scar, wound, injury. This is multiplied in all the, all the petitions that we get, that it is sometimes Hindu hurt, sometimes Nadar hurt, sometimes other kinds of hurt. Now, so this is, uh, uh, this is a uh, debate which went on. We uh, replied to it. Uh, NCRT had to intervene. The court cases were being fought. Ultimately, it is not in 1912, uh, 2012 when the uh, case initially came up, but uh, last month, uh, uh, two, three months back, that the chapter itself was uh, deleted from the textbook you know, because of the fear that this will lead to uh, uh, further mobile, uh, uh, reaction amongst the lower castes in India. Now the second uh, idea, um, uh, the second example that I take is about a reverse uh, example, which is about the Brahmins, what the Brahmins do. This is the lower caste example. Now the Brahmins um, react again in a, uh, by criticizing the books in a variety of ways. In 2016, the All India Brahmin Association uh, wrote a uh, 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 sent us a um, writ petition against the NCRT and against the editors and the writers, claiming that the textbooks had glorified the Muslims, demeaned the uh, Hindus, and uh, uh, represented the past in ways which has caused hurt to the Hindus. Um, the authors of the textbook, it said, maliciously uh, have maliciously hidden all true facts of the past, uh, presented a biased opinion uh, against Hindu history and culture, and they have erase the glorious history of Vedic India and Hindu, Hindu India. So uh, this writ petition went on to protest against every reference to the caste oppression in the past and tried to argue that there has never been caste oppression. It went on to argue that there has never been gender oppression. 
women have never been oppressed in the Hindu past. You cannot talk about everywhere we had referred to any example of uh, the position of women being uh, uh, not that equal to it was always in very gentle terms there was no polemic in the textbook but if you talked about the rights of women not being equal to that of the men that was not acceptable because women in india have always been looked after and they have always enjoyed uh, a wonderful uh, uh, you know conditions of life etc um, so uh, 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 if anything has and it, the the fact that these things are being talked about is because these authors are actually pampering the Muslims and the Christians. This is all a conspiracy of foreigners, Christians, and Muslims in order to destroy Indian culture. And three minutes? Four minutes? Hmm, four minutes. Uh, so this is something which you find uh, is a recurring argument in all the petitions, whether it is of the Brahmins or the Hindutva group, or even of the famous Californian debate. If you, those of you who have followed the debate in Californian textbook, I'll just give an example to show how this Brahmin argument comes up in the same thing as in California, where, uh, um, sorry. See, uh, this is from the Californian history textbook debate where the history textbooks which are published by different uh, um, publishers there were criticized by uh, two associations. One is the Vedic Foundation and, and another which I'll come to. Uh, uh, huh? Yeah. Uh, so this, this, I've picked up two or three quotations here. Uh, modern day Hinduism is very complex. This was in the text. Many beliefs, many forms of uh, worship and many gods exist side by side. There's a multiplicity of variety. And the Vedic Foundation said you remove this. Because Hinduism is one, India is one, religion is one, everyone was united, there is no multiplicity. Multiplicity exists within Hinduism as part of Hinduism, but it is in essence simply one. So you cannot talk about multiplicity, that is to destroy Hinduism and attack Hinduism. Um, uh, this is the Hindu Educational Foundation there, textbook. Uh, uh, one of the textbooks that I picked up on, the text said men had many more rights than women, uh, unless. Um, men had many more rights than women unless there were no sons in a family only a man could inherit property only men could go to school or become priests and the uh, the suggestion was that replace men had different rights and you because different doesn't mean hierarchy that women have the same uh, not the same rights but it's not inferior to men you cannot talk of men having better uh, higher, more rights than women um, so the, these kinds, uh, one can go on. See, there's a, there's a simple reference. The caste system is just one example of how Hinduism was woven into the fabric of daily life in India. No scathing attack or criticism. And again, the recommendation is just remove this. You cannot talk of discrimination. Caste discrimination did not exist. So essentially, the argument is that uh, there was one nation, one nation, one religion. Everyone was happy. There was a pride in culture. And this pride in culture is something which has to be protected, foregrounded, and written about so that uh, present-day generation of Indians and the young school are, uh, um, are aware of that uh, proud past and are instilled with this pride in the present. Now, this is something which we uh, see is uh, uh, repeated in the Hind Hindutva textbooks within India, which I might discuss later um, uh, in the course of discussions. I may not have time. But what I'd like to argue here is that these two reactions that you see, one is the lower caste reaction and the upper caste uh, reaction, I would say is 
dialectically in some way uh, uh, tied up together. The more lower caste, the lower caste, the more they assert their right and want themselves to be represented in the history of the nation. Want th there is uh, within which we, I see a politics of recognition. Recognize we exist. We have been always marginalized from the national histories. Uh, histories of the nation have been written as if everyone is one. But our histories have been neglected. It has been uh, marginalized. And we have a right to be understood, written about, represented within the nation's history and the national textbook. Now, that's one kind of a reaction. Now, this creates an anxiety. This creates a fear in a variety of forms of, uh, the, of breakdown of that national homogeneous unity which the Hindutva group uh, seek to build. And the upper caste react much more violently than 30 years back in order to argue that all these attempts to rewrite history are problematic, they are, uh, they are breaking, um, they are malicious, they are being done in order to destroy Indian society. Uh, what we need to do is to unify India Homo, uh, and or the nationalism and the nation that they visualize is one which is masculine, male, homogeneous, uh, with one culture, with one nation, uh, one kind of ideology of the nation, and a certain kind of pride in that past. And if we see the Hindutva textbooks, the um, the RSS textbooks, the BJP textbooks, which have been introduced in a number of states now. It's astonishing the kind of histories which are uh, being written there. I can't uh, elaborate on that, but they all talk of the past, uh, the pride of the past in that way. And in order to talk about that pride of the past, if the facts have to be rewritten in ways which does not conform to the craft of the historian, there is no evidence in that, then it does not matter. Because what is important is the end, and the means to that end doesn't matter. So the ends means uh, argument is rethought in a way where the craft of the historian, which is one where uh, referencing, uh, reference to the archives, evidence become the basis of a claim to truth, and the authority of the statements that you make, the validity of the arguments you do, that's thrown overboard. Uh, just to give one example, for instance, one of the things which all national, nationalist histories, whether uh, um, militant right-wing nationalism or uh, left nationalism or uh, liberal nationalism does, is to uh, celebrate heroes of the past. But who you celebrate, how you celebrate matters. Now, they celebrate Hindu heroes of the past who have fought against the Muslims and who have battled against the Muslims and who have uh, fought for Hindu nation. That's the way they want to represent. And, one, uh, and for that, they would argue, give evidence which has no basis in historian's fact. Just uh, one example here. Maharana Pratap is uh, somebody who uh, fought the battle of uh, Haldigati uh, against the Mughals. And he was defeated in the battle of Haldigati, the particular. But in the stories that you read there, he won the battle. He fought the Mughals. The Mughals escaped, ran away from there. They enclosed themselves within walls where they could, they could uh, protect themselves from uh, Maharana Pratap. And he is the hero of the battle. So if the point is to represent Maharana Pratap as the hero of the battle, as, the, as somebody who will inspire present day generations uh, against the Muslims. So if for that, if you tweak the facts, it doesn't matter. From, so what I'm trying to suggest is that here, uh, it's not a battle of interpretations, of not of reading, not of how we represent. And, uh, it is a different kind of battle where it doesn't matter what the historians say and how they say it and the, the nature of that truth that historians. Learn. So you can use any form of myth 
any form of story and uh, any form of uh, uh, humor in order to sustain an argument, uh, in order to develop a notion of the nation which is unified, masculine, homogeneous, Hindu, uh, and demonize the Muslims uh, as uh, rapists, attackers, um, uh, butchers, temple destroyers, uh, and uh, um, you know, um, um, represent them as the uh, as embodiment of evils against Hindus who are the embodiments of good. So this battle of the good and the evil, the uh, the Hindus and the Muslims, is what is played out in all the Hindutva textbooks. Uh, that we see being taught in Rajasthan, in Gujarat, in many other states in India. Uh, how the battle will be fought, uh, how this history battle can be fought is something which um, I, would, I don't really have an answer for. Uh, how can a historian with their claims, uh, uh, with their own uh, professional um, uh, notions of professional craft can engage in a debate where none of those are recognized as part of the practices through which a debate or a dialogue can really happen. Now, uh, the assumption in the public history is that everyone who comes to the public in some ways, everyone who comes there has a rational debate, as a democratic rational debate through which truth is developed, which is an Habermasian concept of a public space where rational debate leads to um, uh, knowledge. Now, this is not something uh, which can explain the public uh, debates that take place in India. I'll stop there. Thank you. I, I originally thought we could have a discussion, but mm -hmm. just had no. You, it's just been brilliant. So I think we just open it out for questions, uh, and we take questions. Um, um, maybe one, uh, three questions together and request, so if Elini and Niladri could uh, please go up there. Yeah. Well, the two very interesting talks. Um, thank you. Um, the one thing worries me a little bit, and I think you were both concerned about misrepresentations or possible injustices in the various parts of the world talking about. But really, what's terribly important in any study of history for children or older you know, for students and so on is how to read various historical texts, if you wish, the writings of historians and also uh, of you know, the oral tradition, that, that what, what's produced there and so on from the people, etc., etc., and to make some kind of judgment and analysis of it. No. Um, okay, history is an enormous subject, um, and you can't possibly study everything there. It's, it's just, and, and yet, what what often happens is that certain events, certain people, you know, are picked out as important in the historical in, in the history curriculum, and who chooses them, and why, right, and. You know, it, it's got to be a kind of balanced selection, really. And I, I wonder, shouldn't, I mean, how, how would you do that with a class of young students or, or children? And, you know, a textbook is not a kind of compendium of so-called facts. 
it, it's, it's, it's a way of training people to make some sort of analysis and a proper judgment of what's been going on. And for this reason, too, I would suggest that history is linked up with um, other forms of literature, such as fiction and poetry, um, because you can get some very interesting ideas across in, in that way. But again, you need judgment and care and so on and so on. Wouldn't you agree with that? If questions could just remain a bit short, yes, just to uh, echo really what Eric has just been saying. Uh, an issue here is certainly it must surely be the dedication to research and investigation in as in as objective, unbiased, <coughs> non-preconceptual a way as possible. If that you know the the stronger that commitment to objectivity is, perhaps the more you'll get a reduction in the problems we've been talking about. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed uh, both the talks and I think the notion of securitization, just a quick comment, uh, is really, um, you know, it's, I think it's very interesting, particularly, you know, it, it actually allows us to look at the moves and look at the ways in which um, you know, not only strong states, but even other small groups can actually strategize and create a construction, construct an enemy, construct um, several myths, as Nandini was talking about earlier. But I have a couple of questions um, for you. Um, the one is the Nadar uh, case, um, uh, and I think um, while the intention intention could be really nice, and uh, you know, the fact that um, that the focus was on on clothing and and practices and so on and so forth. Considering that so many non-dominant groups are um, aspiring not just for political but also some kind of cultural space and cultural respect, um, and the fact that Indian classrooms continue to be very Brahminical, women's bodies continue to be, um, you know, surveilled, and there is there is a lot of silence and there is a lot of still a lot of Brahminical um, thoughts about um, you know norms about purity etc. Go on. Um, in that context, do you think it can be handled? differently, it can be handled with much, with little more um, sensitivity or solidarity towards a group that is actually struggling these different things about, you know, understanding one's cultural identity as well as uh, also sort of battling the, the patriarchy within, uh, you know, being a, a particular class position that, that they are in. That's one question. Can I have a very quick? Very Okay, very sorry. Um, so you, you were mostly talking about history, um, writing textbook production as part of state apparatus or state production. Uh, but I would like uh, your comment on um, these parallel sort of history productions that go on in India and that has increased tremendously in the last few years, particularly through social media like WhatsApp. So I think this is, a, this is an industry of history writing, which is, um, you know, so the historians are nowhere, uh, you know, in, uh, to compete or even like they're completely dismissed. Forget about historians, a anybody else with a reason has been dismissed by this WhatsApp industry of creating parallel histories. And, um, you know, so, so um, what is, you know, where is the public um, history or, uh, you know, even, even saving the ideal of public history in that context? Maybe you could answer these three if you need mm -hmm. some time. So, uh, 
Okay. Um, I, does this work? So I, I think I, think I don't need to work. Okay. So um, in terms of the, um, the first question, I think your first question is also referring to a wider debate in, in the education sector, which talks about do you focus on the content or do you focus on the skills? Mm -hmm. And in the UK, it was I think it, there's a now, now a counter argument to that, that it was gone too far because it shows <laughs> the skills aspect of it. So it's mostly focusing on critical skills and the historian skills. However, we have to remember um, that uh, in Cyprus, it has not even gone close to the UK context of skills, of critical thinking, and how to critically deconstruct a text. The, text. the textbook is very often used in a very blind way by the teacher as the authoritative tool, and these are the facts, the objective modernist facts and uh, lens, and here it is, you have to parrot learn it. And in the textbooks, there aren't, for example, like in the UK, a history textbook where there's a different sources, often competing sources, and the student is asked uh, to contextualize who wrote it, why, when, and what, what can we see about the differences, what do you think. There's not this dynamic uh, history centered in terms of the skills. It's more about these are the facts, these are the pictures, sources are just pictures. So there aren't these, uh, this focus on the history. There's uh, um, very old fashioned, I, like I said, the textbooks are still the same from the 90s. So it would be great if we had these uh, skills and then even if the textbook is really problematic, then the student will be able to deconstruct and use their skills. But at the moment, given that the textbooks are so old fashioned and that even the pedagogical skills that are, the teacher is using is also uh, sometimes uh, problematic, then I think we are still behind that. Um, and the, um, it, I also want to say here that textbooks are not the only important thing. Um, what is very important is how a teacher uses them, but also when the students go back to their, fam to their homes and families and listen to the stories of their parents or grandparents or neighbors or watch the uh, TV and or read uh, newspapers or social media and they get a very different version so even if we change the history textbooks it's not enough if the wider discourses are still different and the second question about dedication to uh, an objective history as possible I think this is quite what is predominant in peace education literature, which I find quite frustrating. It's very normative. It's like, this is what should be done. And I, of course, completely agree. But the problem is, why isn't it being done? So, and this goes back to what I call the um, inherent circularity of peace education. In other words, the attitudes that it's trying to change from in the, the textbooks, the perceptions that it's trying to change, are basically, um, can't be changed because it's the same attitudes that the people have. So those teachers or so politicians who were raised with these textbooks are going to resist a, a changing of their own perception. So you fall in, in, in a kind of catch-22 because the, the attitudes that need to be changed are those that are being resisting the change to begin with. So we end up in a circular argument. So there's a lack of political will and the political structures in shape are so hegemonic that they operationalize a, an ex, a truth regime of exclusion and you can't overcome that. There's only a minority of NGOs and people that want to change this. So there, I agree with you, that would be great, but we have to look at the political yeah. reality. Yeah. Um, uh, about uh, the fact that history is something which uh, involves reading, uh, interpretation, 
uh, and uh, uh, objective uh, uh, understanding of facts. It's not simply a compendium of facts, but it's uh, interpretation. Now, that's something uh, most of us have agreed uh, uh, to since uh, the 1960s, since EHK, but uh, also subsequently uh, the whole debate on what historical narrative is uh, with the problematization of the whole uh, uh, project of doing research, the archival turn, um, how, do, how to read material, all that is something uh, Indian historians, like other places, are very sensitive to. But I think uh, we can no longer uh, actually operate with an unproblematic category of uh, objective history writing, because that almost uh, refuses to acknowledge that we always operate with categories and terms which, whose uh, prejudices and biases we do not know, because they, are, they appear so natural to us, uh, we don't even realize that we are reading and seeing things in a particular frame. And that uh, critiquing that frame is the object of all reflexive history, that we have to constantly subject ourselves to a critique, uh, our frames to a critique, so that we can write more, uh, 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 more persuasive histories, more meaningful histories, and be aware of all the prejudices that uh, we operate with. Yes, that yeah. Yeah. I uh, we agree. Uh, generally agree. And what I would argue is that if you see our history textbooks of the last set of textbooks, it's this is something which we are doing all through the textbooks. That how to read sources. The uh, sources there. The problems of reading. Different kinds of sources are being counterposed. Different readings of those sources are, and then uh, uh, how uh, one could use not one set of sources but a variety from inscriptions to oral history to. Each one has a problem, uh, meaning the, the reading of uh, each has a specificity of its own. And how do we understand that is something which the students are being initiated into as part of school textbooks in that sense. So uh, there is a, a lot of experiment with uh, advanced pedagogic uh, um, techniques there. About Nader's and uh, WhatsApp University. Now, um, well, I could only uh, refer to one part of the story of the Nadas. The other part of the story of the Nada is that uh, within the Nadas, and that's just like there is no one Hindu nation and one Hindu idea, there is no one Nadar conception of the past. Uh, when the Hindu Nadas wrote to us about this, the Christian Nadas said, just uh, please do not accept a single thing that the uh, a Hindu Nadar said. That's not our history. Our history is of a battle against uh, Brahminical oppression. And it is through Christian missionary activity that uh, all these breast changes have come. So you cannot uh, change any, a single sentence in the textbook. And there was not one petition, several petitions from the Christian associations in different places. That is, this is a Hindu interpretation. They are trying to be upwardly mobile. They are uh, absorbing the ideas of the Hindu nation from the Hindutva groups. And they are talking about uh, uh, being uh, Hindu kings in the past. We were not. We were oppressed. So therefore, uh, the way that I would look at it is in the writing of a history textbook, if we, we have a historian's uh, narrative, we can counterpose the Christian narrative, a Christian uh, Nada narrative with the Hindu Nada narrative. They have different representations of the past. How do you read this? Uh, so therefore, we give the material to the students. And I think students in class 9, 10, 11, 12 are mature enough to handle this. 
Um, about WhatsApp University, I fully agree. In fact, in a, a largest section of the paper, which I couldn't talk of because the time was short, I have uh, dealt with many of the other kinds of texts being produced and circulated in the market as part of the RSS to the Hindutva to the Rajput to the other uh, histories. But the crisis of uh, histo uh, the historian's authority or academic authority that I am talking about is precisely this. That is. Uh, the, the historian is not actually shaping the historical sensitivity of the nation. It is being shaped by uh, other kinds of history circulating through WhatsApp, uh, the, uh, the internet web, and bazaar histories. Uh, Indra and I have been involved in doing a whole project on bazaar histories, the chapbooks which are sold in the bazaar. Uh, what is the kind of historical sensibility you can read from that? Because that is something which people are reading. And there is sensitivity, uh, sen uh, sensitivity about the past is defined, shaped, and figured by those kinds of histories. So I fully agree with you. And we need to, therefore, take that seriously to understand how possibly we can first to understand them, what they are doing uh, in terms of uh, uh, cultural uh, constitution of a cultural imaginary. Then to understand how do, do academic historians do anything about this history which is going around. Uh, so that's a hugely difficult project. Uh, so we are involved at the moment in beginning to understand that, uh, read that seriously. Because 30 years back, nobody would have read those things. Now, in the, uh, just to wind up, what I find very important and interesting is that many of these historians who are writing the Hindutva textbooks or the other kind of texts in the bazaar and which were these were individuals who were writing petitions against the NCRT for the last 35 years. The difference between them in the past and the present is this, that Dinanath Batra, who carried on a campaign against Ramanujan's book, uh, uh, Oflati's uh, book, uh, and a series of other books, and constantly writing, he was known as the petition man, he wrote all these petitions, he wrote the RSS textbook, they were not part of the state textbooks. Now these individuals, Dinanath Batra is the advisory, he's a member of the advisory committee of the state, in uh, the central. He's writing the, all the objections, uh, 300 objections, he's uh, penning them. So the marginal figures have become central figures supported by the state. And that's a huge change which is taking place. We have time for maybe just two more questions, so Christina and um, Indra. I have a question. I'm very, very interested. Uh, thank you for these two talks. Um, I have a question for Neladri and, and one for Eleni. So for Neladri, you uh, draw a very um, clear line between the academic historians and um, the people who kind of, you know, don't want to distinguish between facts and history and uh, their narratives that they prefer. Um, but the question is whether there's not also the figure of compliant historians or historians who actually are in the service of particular narrative, but who still say or they are trained as academic historians. Um, and isn't it a bit of a more blurred field where you have to look also at the roles of other actors, so maybe censors or administrators or the courts or politicians um, who choose which historians uh, are able to shape the narrative more than other historians. So how complex is this field? Um, and um, to Eleni, um, um, to, to talk about anxiety and um, different groups um, anxious to um, 
had ward off some vague threats to their identity um, <coughs> makes total sense. But this could actually be used for any group in any period whatsoever. So you could say that the Welsh at the moment in Britain have this anxiety, or that um, you know uh, East Germans have it at the moment uh, in Germany, um, or that the Brahmins have it, or the Greek Cypriots have it. But um, there's no way of measuring how much anxiety there is. I mean, it is an immeasurable quantity. And therefore, I wonder how useful is it really for our analysis, because we can always use it as an argumentative figure to explain things, but we can't even, we can't really use it to explain the differences in outcome. Mm -hmm. Should we take in terms as well? Yeah. Um, so mine is really a very sort of a simple but a very vague and meta question, if you forgive me. Uh, how do you respond to the fact that if you accept Perhaps we all do that. In sort of, we are living in an age of a surge in nationalism, uh, and it's perhaps a moment in time when there's a certain disconnect between nationalism, the nation state, and what we have historically so far understood as the public sphere. You know, which you know, un which which is undergirded by a certain <coughs> consensus of values, or you know, as perhaps to a certain degree an elite consensus. I don't know. But is it, how do you respond to the fact that, the, I mean, I'm just posing it to you, is there a disconnect? Because what is the public sphere? It is, or is it a very, or do you accept that it is rapidly changing and the values of the public sphere are rap rapidly changing and that we as professional historians are perhaps still haven't quite grasped the rules of the game and, you know, is that what <coughs> makes us unable to understand, you know, to get handled? On the situation, so that's just general. Just, you know, I'm just wondering whether the professional left liberal historians, who today is sort of becoming an endangered species, what I'm wondering whether, you know, we had not, in terms of the larger public discourse, that one didn't realize that things had changed so much. Because as Indra is saying, suddenly after 2009, when they were all already this right, uh, you know, this hegemonic discourse, is it that the historian really didn't realize that the public discourse was changing and was very different from what the historian believed, and that the historian had stopped shaping uh, sensitivity quite a while? <coughs> I'm just wondering whether that reality was not understood. And it's only now that we have realized that you know there is this great gap between because a lot of teachers uh, who are actually transacting the textbooks also come from that you know with that public imagination. So what you are may not actually be transacted at all. And uh, if I could just quickly just add, is it a larger problem? This is of course Tunilatri. Is it a larger problem? Is it a problem of how we try and how, how, how truth itself, in a sense of generation of uh, uh, truth itself, is being is under question? Because today in India, it's not just historians, although we're talking today here about public history, I mean history, it's also scientists. 
So it's it's also a question of how you, what methods do you use to understand social realities. So scientists are also, uh, you know, a certain kinds of scientists are under, uh, yeah. you know, threat today. So is it a larger kind of shift and in which history is positioned in a particular way? Hmm? Uh, I don't know how you then. And the other thing was also I was quite struck by this, you know, the politic political history and social history, and how both become so intensely intertwined in these, you know, contestations. Um, so because you actually both spoke about two, you know, Eleni spoke about political history, and here we were talking very clearly about socialist Sunilatri. So it was quite interesting to see how both are so mm -hmm. such contentious kind of intersections. No, it's just one sentence, and maybe it's also that books are no longer the medium, um, and that um, it is no longer the textbooks that are most influential, but it is other kind of media, more visual media, or WhatsApp, or videos, that professional historians are not really using as much, but that have a huge influence. Two uh, points about uh, your first question. One is that, uh, of course, there are other people, other actors complicit in uh, affirming specific uh, viewpoints uh, and uh, helping uh, their generalization, either through wider publication or, uh, you know, uh, by, by making them, giving them authority and power within the educational sphere. I would say, for instance, the 1970s, 1970s, when the first set of uh, textbooks were written, was a time of uh, where the Nehruvian elite, liberal left elite, was dominant in India. So they were in positions of power everywhere. And the textbooks which were written were uh, liberal democratic. They were not really Marxist, left, or anything. They were liberal democratic, fighting against, uh, uh, um, critiquing communal communal representation of the past or colonial representation which were the which were uh, uh, which shaped the earlier books which were circulating in the market now they got their positions of power also from the state because it was a liberal democratic uh, state and the present uh, state hindutva state is giving power to alternative act uh, kinds of history writing and uh, generalizing uh, them and uh, criticizing, replacing the earlier textbooks. Uh, so therefore, uh, there is definitely the question of state power, uh, uh, help of the state power. But the point I would argue is that if um, the authority of the, what I'm call, referring to the authority of the historian or the legitimacy of the historian's craft is accepted, then there can be debate and discussion between our diverse uh, viewpoints, whether of right, left, middle, whatever, uh, a whole range of debate. That is because you accept a minimal level uh, of, uh, you accept certain terms of discourse, certain terms uh, through which you authenticate uh, material evidence and then read the history and the interpretation and critiques and debates can happen within that kind of a frame. But now the crisis is that that's not that and it is precisely because it's shifted to other spaces you know, of WhatsApp, this, which is completely different notion, uh, ways of uh, ratification of uh, 
um, of uh, affirmation of truth. I've written a little about this, how, what is the kind of shift which is taking place, what's the notion of truth which emerges from all this um, um, in some other papers. Uh, so that's, that's a shift which we have to understand. Uh, the, um, the public spheres clearly are changing because public sphere is not one homogeneous public sphere, it's different publics which are. Now WhatsApp creates its own public. Now, the social media creates this one public, and one of the ways in which it uh, produces truth, it through self-reference, and that is, uh, and through circulation, that is, you, you get an information out, it is circulated in minutes to across uh, the population, and that's uh, retweeted or recirculated re and shared in ways that history textbooks and other textbooks never could be shared. The print run of academic textbooks is 500 to 1,000. Uh, and the, uh, the textbooks that, uh, uh, academic books is fine. The textbooks that we produced were uh, about a lakh and 10,000 per year. So the, over time there will be about 40,000, uh, 30,000 uh, pe people will uh, read it in 25, 20 years or something. Uh, but the reach has changed and uh, self-referencing <coughs> where you quote another WhatsApp message to authenticate the claim that you have made without checking the, the truth of the... Therefore, the, those terms are completely... WhatsApp public is a different WhatsApp public. But the uh, media, the, the greater problem is with this wider circulation of what I'm referring to as Bazaar histories. That thousands of uh, 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 um, stories, novel, uh, fiction, right, uh, histories which are sold so cheap in the market chapbooks in the Western sense. And those are sold so cheap. They're, those are read by people, hundreds and hundreds and thousands of people every year. And that's what shapes historical imagination. That's not something which we took seriously. Academics of our earlier generation did not. With the 1980, uh, 1990s onward, we started taking it seriously. We realized that there is something else happening. That we are, we, uh, historians cannot claim to have any control, uh, any uh, influence over the uh, the cultural and historical imagination of the people. In a certain, sense. you realize that people suddenly are uh, saying things which you couldn't imagine was ac acceptable to anyone. So the rise of the Hindu right is something which. Um, has to be understood in a way where uh, their power to shape uh, grassroot, uh, from the grassroots the imagination of the people. They've been working for 60, 50, 60 years in Shishumandirs in the schools. Their schools are there in every tribal village to every place. No liberal uh, educationist has made that effort to reach there. And that's uh, a long-term investment they have made over 50 years. And there is, uh, I would argue, a complete fascization of mind which takes place, with Hinduization of mind which takes place, Who, whose power and this thing which we'll only realize in the years to come. That is a, a transformation which uh, is un, uh, unimaginable. It should be suffused with the sense of Hindu in Russia. Yeah, Hindu Russia, completely. Uh, and the hatred for Dalits and the Muslims and which you see there, what you refer to as the, between the, the Turkish and this, the kind of villainization which takes place. This is there uh, circulating in all the texts of the bazaar. Yeah. So how does one handle that? We don't know how to handle it. What are the tools? Yeah. <coughs> okay, so um, the first question about the difficulty in quantifying emotions. 
this was part of the reason why it was only over the past 10 or 15 years that uh, scholars have actually paid more attention to the role of emotions. And I think we have to, um, on the one hand, we have to understand that there is not just one way of measuring things in the kind of positivist typical sense. There are uh, ways that emotions can be measured uh, or um, to, to look at the impact or the role that emotions play through discourses using a post-positivist approach. And that's why I find discourse analysis and also uh, field work, ethnographic observations very uh, useful. If we take the positivist approach in, the in, in, in why textbook revisions fail, then we end up in the circularity argument of what's causing it to fail, it's the same attitudes that are in the textbooks and we end up nowhere really. Mm -hmm. But when you change the framing into a post-positivist post question of what are the conditions of possibility that ensure that the resistance is constantly being hegemonic, we look at the discourses and how they're being constantly reproduced. And within these discourses, the emotions are very potent. And that's why the securitization framework I find very useful and has been used pretty much a lot over the past 15 years from in the field of international relations because it opens up the question of not whether something exists but how it is constructed as existing and the impact it has uh, on on, uh, on uh, policy changes or, or preventing. So um, I think it's important to not so much measure emotions, but to see uh, how they are triggered, how they are mobilized, how spe people talk about emotions and they, or they even act in ways that um, mention, that you can see there is anxiety. For example, in some of my interviews, uh, they would all talk about peace and we need to learn about democracy, but when it, came to changing the history textbooks, you could see a physical, a physical, like they would pop out the chair and be like, no, no, we, we can't do that. So you can actually also see uh, from ethnographic field work that um, there are signs of uh, anxiety. I do agree with you that in today's age, anxiety is almost everywhere. And there was a book published in 2017 called The Politics of Anxiety, uh, saying about how anxiety is becoming part of our everyday um, experiences because of the war on terror. We have like the red, uh, the color-coded alerts uh, with the different attacks, and uh, we we live in an age of surveillance. I mean, in the trains here, it's like um, see it, say it, sorted. It's constantly, you know, this uh, fear of what anxiety of what might happen. Uh, I agree with you, but I also think that there is. Um, value in actually looking at, and it goes back to what Indra was saying, in really looking at in depth at how people feel, because emotions are what are driving us and are also what are constituting us, and we use, feel, and be mobilize emotions in ways that are not so tangible, but this doesn't mean they don't exist. The fact that you can't measure something quanti quantifiable doesn't mean it doesn't <coughs> exist. And uh, Indra was, taught, was saying about the uh, resurgent nationalism and the values that are rapidly changing. I think if we go beyond the argument that it's the technology and uh, the fast pace and the democratization because of all the resources, I think part of the reason is that for a long time we were in a way a little bit arrogant to actually um, deconstruct why people feel certain things, fear certain things. And even in academic uh, literature, 
like I said at the beginning, there is this kind of, they're the spoilers of the peace processes. We are like the good guys. And we, uh, academics who themselves criticize the labeling, we're doing labeling without really realizing it. I think this is part of what has brought us to today of living in the age of extremes because people don't feel that they're being heard. They're being rejected constantly. Maybe they are wrong, but this doesn't mean we shouldn't hear them and try to understand why is it that they fear this. And, uh, how can we come closer to um, addressing these fears and anxieties? But wouldn't then the argument be naturally that historians, are, because of our training, etc., uh, unless you unlearn the whole package, how do you assess and approach? I mean, that's the challenge, mm -hmm. isn't it? Mm -hmm. it's, I think the awareness is one thing, but what tools do you have? I think what agree with. The, uh, your uh, argument at one level, that is, uh, uh, professional academics have been arrogant as to, uh, and therefore not, you have distanced yourself from others and not really even begin to hear. Mm -hmm. But when you begin to hear, what are the ways in which you uh, negotiate oppositions, differences, conflicts? Is there a shared premise uh, of uh, accepted terms of discussion on the basis of which uh, debates can be conducted. That's the point. Well, I think the initial aspect is to create a space where there can be a conversation, because yeah. at the moment there isn't a space where there can be a conversation. And then, uh, for me personally, the ultimate authority should be the historian. Mm -hmm. um, but after hearing yeah, uh, and having this conversation and not just rejecting it because it's it's sad. But I think, uh, going back to your last example, um, uh, I find, I think it would be great if both petitions were primary sources in the textbooks. <laughs> so both the petitions in a textbook so students could see that different points of view, I think that would be great. And I also loved your last example with um, the uh, attack against the Mughals, you said. Uh, we've always heard that the history, uh, the it's the victors who write the history. I think this way it's the hi it's history uh, <laughs> the other way around, right? So yeah, I, I really enjoyed uh, listening to these uh, insights. So I think we can wind up the session. Thank you very much, um, um, Eline and Niladri. That sure. extremely interesting. I'm sure we can carry on these conversations for a long time, touch all of us. Uh, in various countries, I think we're all going through these processes. In India, we're very, uh, in, yeah, in the thick of it, yeah. But uh, thank you very much. We very. Good